ನಿರಂಜನಂ ನಿತ್ಯಂ ಅನಂತರೂಪಂ ಭಕ್ತಾನುಕಂಪಾಧೃತವಿಗ್ರಹಂ ವೈ ಈಶಾವತಾರಂ ಪರಮೇಶಮಿಡ್ಯಂ ತಂಗ್ರಾಮಕೃಷ್ಣ ಶಿರಸಾನಮ ಜನನಿ ಸಾರದಿ ರಾಮಕೃಷ್ಣ ಜಗದ್ಗುರು ಪಾದಪದ್ಮೀತಣಮಿ ಮುಹೂರ್ಮುಹು ನಮಸ್ತಿರಾ ವಿವೇಕಾನಂದಸೂರೈ ಸಚ್ಚಿಸುಖಸ್ವಾಪಹಾರಿಣೆ So today we are going to start the last chapter of Swami Vivekananda's Karma Yoga the 8th chapter it's about one year actually it is more than one year we were studying the this Karma Yoga of Swami Vivekananda so it's a very small booklet but as we were going through it we found actually so much of idea is condensed into it but we almost not almost we took more than one year to go through the discussion of all the ideas which swami ji has presented in his karma yoga and not only that actually in some of the portions thinking it to be too abstruse we actually hurried through those portions if we have really have to do justice to swami vivekananda's karma yoga i think still uh, a couple of more classes we had to allot for it uh, but just as we wanted to have the general theme the general notion which swami ji had while discussing the karma yoga we went through it we neither went too hurriedly nor we were elaborating too much so that we can have a gist of the ideas which swami ji has presented through his lectures in karma yoga so today the eighth chapter is itself the gist of all the discussions which swami ji had on karma yoga in the previous seven lectures so the eighth chapter the title is the ideal of karma yoga this chapter we will take portions of it the salient features which has been discussed by swami ji and most probably we will take uh, just uh, if possible today or at the most another one class to complete our discussion on swami vivekananda's karma yoga and as we have indicated previously we will be starting the study of bhagavad gita on the completion of karma yoga and we will find 
the entire bhagavad gita is something which was in the background of swamiji's mind when he was delivering the lectures on karma yoga so it will be very appropriate to start the bhagavad gita after studying swami vivekananda's karma yoga we can take that for the last one year we were actually doing an introduction to the bhagavad gita by in the process of studying swami vivekananda's karma yoga so now let us enter into the text i won't be reading the entire text for the eighth chapter i will take out the portions and just have a short discussion on it as you will find we are already quite familiar with those ideas as we were studying the karma yoga quite elaborately for the last one year the grandest idea in the religion of the vedanta is that we may reach the same goal by different paths namely those of work love psychology and knowledge so these are the four yogas which swami vivekananda is speaking of that there are many paths which uh, in a general way can be boiled down to four paths what are the four paths karma bhakti raj or dhyana yoga and gyana yoga so we as a human being have various faculties to utilize those faculties in a proper way so that our spiritual journey is accelerated this four yogas has been depicted has been enunciated karma we all have the faculty of action how to use that faculty of action so that it doesn't bind us in the world it doesn't take us spirally downwards into the endeavors of our worldly existence and just end up there with full disintegration instead of that it can take us spirally upwards the same karma as in the bhagavad gita it has been mentioned yoga karma su kaushalam that we can do the same action with a proper orientation that instead of binding us it can render us free spiritually free so that faculty of action which we are using is the thing which we are, uh, is being described as karma yoga so we all have the faculty of emotion of love we all no, no one has to explain what love is we all feel it the same thing with that the faculty of emotion if we leave it to itself in its own default mode it can bind us it can infatuate us it can be the cause of suffering it can disintegrate us the same love the same faculty of emotion the same faculty of love when we direct it in some sublime manner instead of uh, forcing just trying to stop it uh, just trying to subjugate it we sublime it so as to develop a love for the divine the same love can free us can emancipate us concentration we all have the faculty of concentration and that's that's the only faculty which has enabled us to progress as a as a as the human civilization 
It's already through this faculty of concentration, all the knowledges, all the knowledge has been opened up, whether it's in the science, art, literature, wherever we find. This same faculty of concentration, again, which we always use for focusing on the things outside. With the senses, we are always moving outside, as has been very nicely spoken of in the Upanishad. Paranchikhani vyatrinat swayambhu tasmat parant pashyati na antaratman. Kaschidhira pratyagatman ekshat avritta chakshu amritatman ekshat. That the Lord, it is in a poetical way of saying it, the Lord has inflicted our senses in such a way that it always looks outside. Never it turns within. Paranchikhani, those all the five senses has been injured in such a way. Kaschidhira, there are a few blessed ones who are calm, who are tranquil, who have the wisdom to turn the senses as if inwards, to close the eyes, avritta chakshu. It's not only the eyes, by closing the eyes, it means by closing all the senses so that it can be turned within. The faculty of focus, concentration, which is constantly taking us outside, that when turned within, to, in the search of who am I? Who, what is the essence of my being? What is the real nature? The same faculty of focus, of concentration, as has been enunciated in the Raja Yoga, can lead to, again, the spiritual emancipation. The knowledge. When knowledge, why jnana is actually meant the power of discrimination. We have a sense of conscience, conscience, which, with which we constantly, the inner voice is constantly active, which says what is good, what is bad, what is pure, what is impure, what is desirable, what is not desirable. In our worldly day-to-day -day life, in all our decision-making, that's the power of discrimination we are using. That is a, a very, very uh, humanly, a human faculty with which we take the decisions, with which we guide our uh, life with the power of this discrimination, what to do, what not to do. Throughout our, our life, we find we are at crossroads where we have to decide which road to take, and that's how we excel in our so-called secular life. The same power of discrimination, when used intently in the search of the truth, that what's the real truth, what just is ephemeral. Anything which is ephemeral, anything which is flowing cannot be the truth. In our scriptures, very nicely it has been defined that what is truth? Truth is that which is, whose existence is not interrupted by any phase of time, past, present, and future. If the existence is interrupted by any phase of time, it was, if it was not there in the past, if it is not going to be there in the future, then it's a mere flow. It is there just for a time. It cannot be the truth. So the search was there. The discrimination, the same power of discrimination was used 
to find out is there anything which is the truth which is eternal which was which is which will be and in this world whatever i see i find it's all flow it's all changing it's all ephemeral is there something eternal behind it with the power of discrimination when we went on discriminating our body our mind our senses the external world to find out the truth the same faculty of discrimination which enables us in all sorts of decision making in our day to day worldly affairs can again render us spiritually free so now you will understand that this all these four yogas is actually using the human faculty the same human faculty with which i perform my day to day activities in the secular world the same faculties can be used to transcend this world so as to get established in the spiritual domain so that's the thing swami ji is saying the grandest idea in the religion of the vedanta is that we reach the same goal by different paths namely those of work love psychology and knowledge these divisions are not very marked and quite exclusive of each other as a human being all the faculties which we have that it's not that we can only work the one who works he also loves he also focuses on things he also has the power of discrimination so when we say that i am a karma yogi it may be that yes i have a preponderance as per my nature i am very active so i have preponderance of action and that's why i prefer karma yoga but that doesn't mean that the other yogas have no role to play in my life it has to be synthesized synchronized if we really want to progress in our spiritual journey so these divisions are not very marked and quite exclusive of each other each blends into the other but according to the type which prevails we name the divisions in the end all these four paths converge and become one all religions and all methods of work and worship lead us to one and the same goal now sri ramakrishna used to give a wonderful example is to say that if the psychophysical existence our human psychophysical existence is just like a flute just think it is like a flute the flute has various holes so many holes are there when you are blowing through the pipe the one who knows to play the flute with his fingers will be just as if walking over those holes to bring out a wonderful music but if i don't know to play the flute what i to just uh, get the noise out of it what i will have to do i have to close all the holes and keep at least one hole open and blow the pipe and then what comes out is a noise it's not a music so ramakrishna used to say that those who are too much biased about a particular yoga they are as if using only one of the human faculty the lord has provided us with all those faculties i don't use all of them i am too much biased to only one of them so you are using the flute the psychophysical existence of uh, with which you have been 
yeah, you are you are born. You have been provided with all those faculties. You are not using them. Only one faculty you are using. It's just like closing all the holes and keeping one hole open and blowing the pipe to bring out noise. The music never comes out. To really bring out the music from our life, we have to use all those faculties in a harmonious manner. And then only the music can come out from your life. And that music is the divine music, which can tune you with the divine. So that's the example Sri Ramakrishna is giving. Another example is that Sri Ramakrishna is giving something very wonderful, that in the olden days, when the goldsmith had to smelt the gold, has to melt the gold, to melt the gold, you needed very high temperature. So there were not, this technology was not that advanced. So how to get the fire of that intense temperature so that it can melt the gold? So after litting up the fire, the goldsmith had some crude procedures to get the optimum temperature to melt the gold. What he used to do? He had a hand fan with which he will be fanning the fire so that the fire gets more inflamed. Not only that, there's a paddle which he is rotating, which is just this paddle, he's just constantly he's wheeling the paddle with his feet. That paddle again is fixed to a fan. So that also is blowing. And it, from in his mouth, there is a pipe with which he's blowing. So all these three together somehow can uh, bring out the optimum temperature. Just flare up the fire and bring out the optimum temperature to melt the gold. So what a wonderful example that all the faculties, if you can use in a harmonious way, then you get the optimum temperature to melt the gold. In this case, in your spiritual journey also, if the work, love, psychology, knowledge, the faculty of action, the faculty of emotion, the faculty of focus or concentration, the faculty of discrimination, if all we can use in a very harmonious manner, then we can accelerate our spiritual journey so as to reach the goal uh, in a much uh, what is a faster pace. So that's the thing Swamiji is indicating, that they are not exclusive. They are somehow one blends to the other. But yes, we may say that I am a karma yogi, I am a bhakti yogi, I am a raja yogi or I am a jnana yogi as per the preponderance of my nature. But that doesn't mean I have to exclude the others. So uh, the more we can balance them, the more we can harmonize them, the more accelerated is our spiritual journey. Now, here it has been spoken that all the four, all these four yogas lead to the same goal. So now the question comes, what is that goal? So now Swamiji, in the words of Swamiji, what is that goal? It is freedom. Everything that we perceive around us is struggling towards freedom. From the insentient, lifeless particle of matter to the highest existence of earth. Everything is going towards freedom. That's the wonderful thing Swamiji is saying. That the entire existence, if you just try to find out that what this intention is, 
Swamiji is saying from insentient things, insentient particles to the human soul, the highest evolution of the creation, everything is trying to, struggling to reach that freedom. In all combinations, every particle is trying to go on its own way to fly from the other particles. So we know the basic science that around the nucleus, the electrons are moving in an atom. What the electrons actually, what's the force of the electrons? It is actually tangential, trying to fly off from the nucleus. But again, it is the nuclear force. It is a, it is the, the, what the protons in the nucleus which is attracting the electrons and is not allowing it to fly off. The earth is trying to fly off from the sun. That huge, tremendous gravitation force of the sun is keeping, is not allowing it to fly off. So everything from the small subatomic particle to the planetary bodies like the earth, even the sun you will find itself in the galaxy. They say each and every galaxy in the center has a black hole. It is again that balance. The sun is trying to just move out. It is the tremendous gravitational force of the black hole, which is not allowing to fly off, but its intention is to fly off. Everything wants freedom. There is a binding force which is acting and we want to get rid of it. And that's what the entire creation speaks of. So whether it is insentient matter, or it is the human soul. Freedom is the goal of all. That's what we are all trying. Everything has a tendency of infinite dispersion. All that we see in the universe has for its basis, this one struggle towards freedom. And now he will say an interesting thing, Swamiji. It is under the impulse of this tendency that is sent praise and the robber robs. <laughs> So again, the same sense of freedom. The saint is oppressed with the knowledge of his condition of bondage and he wants to get rid of it. And so he worships God. The thief is oppressed with the idea that he does not possess certain things and he tries to get rid of that want to obtain freedom from it. So he steals. So your the idea of bondage varies and accordingly our that how we try to get rid of that bondage that may be different but the basic thing we somehow feel that we are bound the thief also the store he's also thinks he's bound that all the resource he wants to be free he doesn't have and that makes him thief and the saint he thinks that this just this world itself is the cause of the bondage. This knowledge of this condition of the bondage, he wants to get rid of it. He wants to move out of it. So whether good or bad, everything behind it we will find is actually that same sense of freedom. Then what actually is good and what is evil? So then again, naturally the question comes that if everyone is going towards the freedom, then how to demarcate between the good and the evil? then what is good and what is evil? The freedom which the saint seeks leads him to the enjoyment of infinite unspeakable bliss, while that on which the robber has set his heart only forges 
other bonds for his soul. That society won't permit a thief or a robber to go on robbing. At last, he's going to end up in jail. He's binding more chains around him. He's making his life miserable. So if freedom is equated with happiness, then of course, that's, the, that's good, which can really lead to that eternal bliss. Otherwise, the sense of freedom, which leads us <coughs> to the misery, it cannot be considered as good. It is evil. So good and evil is actually not something uh, which defines the thing by itself. Is a quantity of happiness. That we all want happiness. As in the scripture, it has been told that as far as the absolute reality is concerned, we may have varied opinions. But in at one point, we all agree. What's that point? That whatever, the way I think of God may be different by, from the way you think of God. That some may not think of God at all. They may think this just to live a very um, rich, there's a wealthy, prosperous life in this world itself is the goal. Whatever it may be. Whether you believe in God or don't believe in God, and if you believe in God, whatever may be the ideas, one, we all agree at one point. What's that? Where in Sankhya Yoga it has been told. That what is the common goal of the entire humanity? Atyantika dukkhanivritti parama sukha prapti. No one wants suffering. Everyone wants uninterrupted eternal happiness. Can anyone deny that? No one can deny that. We all want happiness. So yes, the same sense of freedom which makes the robber rob and the same sense of freedom which makes the saint meditate. How to differentiate between these two as good and evil? The one which can lead me to that eternal happiness, eternal bliss that I consider as good, that which cannot lead, they're all evil. So that's what Swamiji is saying. So then what is the real freedom? So now Swamiji will come that the real freedom can come only through unselfishness. That real, if you want eternal happiness, it can never come through anything which leads to selfishness. Anything which you get through selfishness, you will find at last is bound to end up in misery. It cannot give you eternal bliss. So if you really think that the freedom should lead to eternal bliss. You have to, you have to believe in the fact that all the pursuits as a human being in our life has to be more and more unselfish. So that's what Swamiji will be indicating. We, when we see a man doing good work, helping others, it means that he cannot be confined within the limited circle of me and mine. There is no limit to this getting out of selfishness. All the great systems of ethics preach absolute unselfishness as the goal. Supposing this absolute unselfishness can be reached by a man, what becomes of him? He is no more the little Mr. So-and-so. He has acquired infinite expansion. The little personality which he had before is now lost to him forever. He has become infinite 
and the attainment of this infinite expansion is indeed the goal of all religions and of all moral and philosophical teachings. It is to get rid of this selfishness. Whether you believe in God or not, everyone will agree that we adore that person who is unselfish, who can sacrifice even his life for the well-being of others. Even an atheist is going to adore such a person. The one who is unselfish is something which we find is adored by all. And the one who is sacrificing his life for an ideal, is he really suffering? No. Subjectively also, it gives him bliss. That's why he's ready to sacrifice. There is always joy in giving. That's the biggest mistake we make in our life when we think that there is a joy in grabbing. There is no joy in grabbing. It is always joy in giving. We suffer in this life when we cannot give. It's the only cause of suffering. I was in the welfare section of Belurmat. And there we were supposed to help with some, you know, this, this, some small pecuniary help we used to give to those who are really in need. So it was sometimes very difficult to act just um, to find out who is, the, who is really in need because sometimes people may just feign that, oh, I need money, but most probably he's not in that need of money. So we will interrogate a lot that why you need the money. And the Swami who was in charge of that section, he told, just observe one thing. What's that thing? That every day you will be asking so many people why you need the money. And just keep a note that how many says that he needs the money for himself or herself. This was really very interesting. From morning to evening, for the seven, eight hours, we were in that welfare office sitting there. So many people coming, we are interrogating them that why they need money, why they are need, in need of some fund. Almost nil, not a single person says that I am hungry. I don't have money to sustain myself, not a single. They will say, I cannot feed my child. I cannot feed my grandchild. The celebration time is coming. I cannot buy the clothes for my child or for my brother, for my sister. It was something, a very wonderful revelation. Not a single person will say that I am suffering. It's not that not a single. Of course, there are there, where genuine cases are there. But most of the people always comes for someone else. And this shows that when we can give something to others, we are in a position to give others. We sometimes don't realize that, that in how much bliss we can just, that God ensures us through our altruistic genes when we can relate to others in the form of giving, whatever it may be, even kind, few kind words. When I speak to others, a few kind words, that can give you an ineffable joy. And that's why we do it. And when you cannot do it, that entails in suffering. It is only because the reason, you know, that our the ego is a barrier to our real existence. As Sri Ramakrishna used to say, the real me is beyond time-space causation. It has no locality. 
It's just used to say that, just take the example of an ocean, a huge ocean with no shores, infinite ocean. And you take a pot and immerse that pot in that ocean. What will happen? A little of the water, a little of the ocean water will enter into the pot. Ramakrishna used to say this pot is your ego. The infinite ocean, which has no barrier, which, which cannot be barricaded, that pot now comes and a little water enters into it and you say this is the pot water. Actually the same water. If the pot is broken, you can never find out that water. It just mixes with that, the ocean. Or if you just consider a wave, is it in any way apart from the ocean? Can you just, uh, just take a wave in a bucket out of the ocean? It's impossible. As long as it is with the ocean, for the time being, it just comes out as a wave and again goes back into the ocean. You cannot take a wave in a bucket out of the ocean. It's the ocean. So our ego barricades. And once it barricades, the first thing that happens, we don't feel that the our emotions, our sense of identity with the others, that gets cut off. The ego is, that's why Sri Ramakrishna always used to use the adjective rascal before the word ego. That rascal ego. Whereas in our scriptures, there are so many, there's a, there's a Kavir, the famous uh, saying that people say that such and such class, those who are the cobbler, they are the low class, I shouldn't touch them. There's, this curse of untouchability was there in the olden Indian tradition. So people say such and such people you cannot touch. But I say this, this ego, the real lowly of the lowly is this ego. The next line is very important. I'm that infinite Brahman. If you have never came in between. It is you who came and made me forget my nature. I think myself as a limited being. And that's why when uh, there is a tragedy, someone has passed away, I'm attending the funeral. It becomes my duty to be somber because I don't feel from within. It's my duty. I should go there. I should speak a few words. Yes, there are few who has that sense of identity. They even cannot speak. Those who, and those who are going and speaking is out of duty, they're doing it. The feeling is not there. Why? That ego barrier is there, which takes away our sense of empathy. The lesser the ego, the more we relate. You will find it in our day-to-day -day life. You will find when the children are playing. It's a very common thing you will find. All are playing together. Very small, almost just they have learned walking. That's in fact one and a half years or something like that. They are all playing together and one falls and starts crying. I have seen in Arunachal Pradesh, Narutam Nagar, those children, one starts crying, the all will start crying. So this easily, so that because that ego barrier is not there, very easily they start relating with each other. I still remember when I was in Arunachal Pradesh, we used to go. Uh, to pick out the few students for our school. When it started, the, the school started, they were the first generation learners. They never knew the importance of education. So we had to somehow insist them. 
But in 20, 25 years, this picture changed. Now there was a tremendous, uh, what do you say that, demand for get the children's admitted in our school because they have started understanding that what education, what change it can bring in their life. And now naturally we have to pick up a few, we cannot take all. So we used to go to the villages to take the preliminary test that whether a little idea of the alphabets or something he has or she has, we will uh, just select them. Just otherwise there's no other way. And when for the first time I went to take this admission test, I had no idea. It, it was in the government circuit halls uh, uh, that it, it was allocated for the test. All the children from the village came, we make them sit, we gave them a, a paper, paper and a pencil and told them write ABCD. And in just after a few minutes, they was they started writing. One child kept the paper and pen and started crying, got nervous for some reason naturally. And in no time, we never gave any notice. You know, that child is crying, what to do? In no time, in just in another few minutes, we found all children are crying. They all left their pen and this paper and they're all crying. And you know, it was 52 kilometers in a, uh, this, uh, this mountainous path. It takes almost the entire day to go there and come back. We couldn't take the test. We have to go another day for taking that test. And that day we uh, asked the, the circuit house to allot us two rooms. There was a next, another room was there. And we took a lot of volunteers. If anyone starts crying immediately, we will just take them on our lap, take him to the next room and give some toffee or something to appease the child and it has to be it has to be the child has to be segregated or else all will start crying so that's how we managed to take the test so why we are just saying it this we we will find that as children when the ego boundaries are very very something feeble it's not there they so easily relate to each other the more we grow the more our ego becomes crystallized the more that empathy we find it's lacking, but that's a natural state. We have actually all got diseased. We say it's normal. You know, when the, any disease becomes common to all, that becomes a natural state. In another tribal area in, or, or, in uh, Tripura, I went to a village with a mobile medical van. We used to go. And there we saw all the children, the tummy is quite big. And I never knew the reason. We asked the villager, they told that's how they are. They, I think, most probably eat a bit more and their tummies are big. And I asked the doctor, is it the fact? Well, no, they're actually malnourished. They don't eat more. Then why they have this big tummy? Then the doctor told, it's a grace of the Lord that they're still alive. These are all malaria infested area. So invariably the child will get malaria at certain point of the time when they're growing. And after the malaria, if they survive, if they die, it's all over. If they survive, the spleen gets enlarged. When, the, when you are get infected by malaria, the spleen gets enlarged. And for that, the stomach looks that bit bulgy. But they, as it is common to all, they take it to be a common normal state. It's that they never think it as a disease. That when we grow up, and we all think to show sympathy is our duty, though we don't feel it in our heart, we fail to realize that we all are diseased that that's why we are taking it as normal. And that's why Shankaracharya has to say very nicely that you know that what's the sign of health? The sign of health is 
that when you don't uh, feel any particular part of your body, you are aware of your entire body. The small child falls, gets some bruises, it even doesn't notice. Is a mother who notices and just does some fast step. It's so full of life. The life is throbbing through the entire body, jumping, frolicking. As we grow old, what's the sign of disease that we say? When we become, when we are no more aware of the entire body, we become aware, we just, our awareness gets restricted to particular part of body and we start saying, I have a headache. The entire body was supposed to be vibrating with the life. Now you have a headache. Their entire attention is on the head. I have a heartache. My knees are paining. My joints are paining. So what is happening? The life which was supposed to throb through the entire body is now as if getting localized to a particular part. And that's why you are diseased. The ease has gone. So Shankaracharya says the moment we take birth as a mortal being, we are diseased. Your ease has gone. Why? The consciousness which is supposed to be non-localized, it has, it has no locality, no boundary. It gets localized only in this body. I say I am. When I say I am, it is within the skin boundary. But what is I am? Beyond that, I am not. So all we will find that in this life, whenever you are helping others, you will find somehow happiness is something bubbling from within. You cannot help it. In, in, the host, uh, in Ramakrishna Mission Hostel, I was there for a long time, just as I had to be with the students. My work was such to be with the students, to just to look after their education. In the hostel, we used to observe a wonderful thing, that before any public celebration, like uh, the birthdays of, the, uh, of Ramakrishna or of any other uh, saints, Whenever we have these celebrations, the public celebrations, there is to be a huge gathering. And now to distribute food, the prasadam to all, was a big task, it was a big job. And we do have sufficient volunteers. It's not that we have to engage the students for that who are staying in hostel. But just to educate them in service, we made it a point that when, in the, uh, when the distribution of food starts, distribution of prasadam starts, it will start, we will start it with the students. They will do it for one hour and then the volunteers will take up. And every year we face the same, face the same problem. When we, when we used to just enlist the students and keep it in the notice board that these are the students who has to perform that duty, there will be a huge, uh, uh, what you say, that objection. No, 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 we don't want to do, we have some other duty and all, but we were very strict about it, no. Once your name, you don't try to give it to someone else. You have been asked to do it. You have to do it. And a very interesting thing. Now, as uh, they found that we are very strict about it, they have to do it. The work starts. After one hour, they are supposed to now just release. The volunteers will come and take over. Every year, it was difficult to insist them to work. And after one hour, it became difficult to uh, just desist them. The volunteers go and say, now you can leave, we will do. They will say, no, we will continue. And invariably, each and every year we found this, after all these children are tender, the next day they will have tremendous body pain. But at that time, they suddenly got the joy. Once they start just, just distributing the food, the joy which emanates from it comes out of it, they don't leave, they want to leave it. 
And that's why we used to tell the, our parents that even in your household, when you are planning to donate something, do it through your children. It is most probably the act which you are going to do, but do it through your children. And because why? That just in the process of doing it, they will feel the joy. And that will motivate. You won't have to say him anymore. This is the big thing which we have to realize in our life. That throughout the life, we uh, what's our condition is just like the lamb. When the lambs are walking over the, a small narrow dam, if one lamb just gets down the dam, all will get down. You just follow the one who is uh, just leading the entire queue. They just simply follow. Our life is also like that. That someone somehow has told that it is only in acquiring wealth, in uh, acquiring power, position in life is your joy. We all simply follow it. That's just simply blindly we are following it. We are just, uh, what you say, they say just following uh, the one who has just told us. It's a just a, like an advertisement. It professes to give us happiness, but it never gives. We find this misery we are all following in and somehow mistakenly most probably you have given someone something and suddenly that ineffable joy comes. And that's the biggest, that's why we say this world is full of ignorance. How ignorant we are that this joy which can come so simply, we are not aware of it. Throughout our life, what happens very nicely in one of the book we, I was reading, that suppose there is a mango tree with laden with ripe mangoes. Now you want to get the mangoes and there are two walls just adjacent to that mango tree. So hurriedly you get one ladder and keep it on one of the walls and get up and just climb up the ladder. After climbing up, you find you have actually kept the ladder on the wrong wall. If you have, if you would have kept the ladder on the other wall, the mango tree would have been nearer and easily you could have grabbed the mangoes. It would have been within your reach. The other wall is a bit far. So where after getting up, you find you cannot reach the mangoes. So throughout our life, we are just keeping the ladder on the wrong wall and find the bliss far away. The same effort for getting up the ladder, the same effort is required. If I keep in this wall, the same effort, the other wall, the same effort. As for the effort is concerned is same. But as I have kept it in the wrong wall, there's no happiness. So just this is the orientation, which is very much important and which all the spiritual traditions are speaking of. Perennial, this wisdom in all the spiritual traditions. That's the idea. Be unselfish. How that's, that's the, uh, the beauty of Ramakrishna Vivekananda literature. How nicely they can bring out the perennial wisdom from all the traditions. Can any tradition uh, deny this fact? that they don't believe in unselfishness. They say that be selfish, not a single tradition. So this breaking, this ego barrier, in Ramakrishna's words, Ami Rubkhat, is the only way to the real happiness. And that's what Karma Yoga is meant for. So now, in the, again, we will go back to the words of Swami Vivekananda. Karma Yoga is the attaining through unselfish work of that freedom, which is the goal of all human nature. Every selfish action, 
therefore retards our reaching the goal and every unselfish action takes us towards the goal. That is why the only definition that can be given of morality is this, that which is selfish is immoral and that which is unselfish is moral. Immoral, we can say, is something sin. What is sin? The sin is that whose core is I. In the word sin, S-I-N. I is the core in the middle. It is encapsulated by S and N. So literally, the core of sin is I. And of course, if you can read between the lines, the core of sin is again I. It is the I, the selfishness, which is the core of all sin. So that's what Swamiji is saying. That which is selfish is immoral. That is sin. And that which is unselfish is moral. The moment you can just get rid of your ego barriers, whatever you are doing, know it for certain, that has to be defined as moral. You need not have to judge that whether this is good or bad. Just try to do something in which that my own uh, self is not important. I give importance to the other. Know it for certain that is bound to be the something which is going to do good to the society, good to all. So that's why I found in a very interesting uh, incident I heard in Sydney when I was in Sydney that one elderly person told me that I, as a driver, I am reckless. Every year I will lose all my points. And last, when I'm just hanging with two, one or two points, I somehow used to get restrained in my driving so that otherwise I will have to just, uh, my license will be uh, taken away. And then it was continuing for years. And then at last I got a letter uh, from the, this transport authority, what? That you have become a matter of danger for others. And then he told, this is the word which restrained me. Oh, it's not just reckless driving that I am doing something. I have become a danger for others. In the road, I'm becoming a danger for others. So this is the idea which we have to always keep in mind. That when you are selfish, I'm doing reckless driving. There's a lot of noises coming out from my car for the selfish reason I enjoy. We forget that actually I am becoming a nuisance for others. And that should direct me to whatever actions it directs me, that is going to be good. Whatever action is directed from my whims and fancies, I don't know for all those meaningless things I do to pamper my whims and fancies, my ego, they're bound to be moral. And that's the simple sentence from you saying that which is selfish is immoral and that which is unselfish is moral. Karma Yoga, therefore, is a system of ethics and religion intended to attain freedom through unselfishness and by good works. The Karma Yogi need not believe in any doctrine whatever. He may not believe even in God, may not ask what his soul is, nor think of any metaphysical speculation. He has got his own special aim of realizing selflessness 
and he has to work it out himself. Every moment of his life must be realization because he has to solve by mere work without the help of doctrine or theory. The very same problem to which the jnani applies his reason and inspiration and the bhakta his love. So you will find that for Swamiji's complete works, for Swamiji's uh, karma yoga and any other complete works, that tremendous reflection is required in each and every line. You know, that's why the Vedic, in the, in the Vedas, that each entire scripture, the entire Vedas, each and every line of the Vedas is called mantra. What, the, what is the meaning of the word mantra? Mananath trayate iti mantra. If you go, Mananath, if you go on cogitating upon it, mentally cogitating upon it, a new dimension of thought comes out. And that can liberate you. So cogitating on an idea, that's why Swami Vivekananda used to say a very interesting thing, that knowledge is not information of, uh, is not gathering of information. It is more of internalization. And he used to give a wonderful example, you know, how the pearl is formed. A particular type of mollusk, when it gets irritated by a sand particle, will dive deep into the bed of the ocean along with that sand particle and will it start salivating over it. And in time, this saliva will get crystallized to form the pearl. So that's why he used to say, take up one idea, think it, cogitate upon it, leave that idea. Let that idea become, that you dream that idea, that, let that idea become the be all and end of your existence. Not to know many things, but to dive deep with an idea that can liberate. That is the manana. So here, one thing Swamiji is saying, when we're reading, we just go through it without that really giving importance to what he's saying, that every moment of a karma yogi's life must be realization. Every moment, what he's speaking, we have already, just as the thing we are discussing, that the moment you start doing unselfish action, each and every unselfish action is bound to give you that bliss. That is something very, very subjective realization. He doesn't believe in God, but he cannot deny that. For all, for a believer of God, God is a belief. But a karma yogi who doesn't believe in God, just believes in unselfish action. Each and every moment, the bliss which comes, you cannot deny that, that you are realizing it's not a belief. So that's why you will find what a wonderful thing he's doing. Every moment of his life must be a realization that if he's really doing an unselfish action, that ineffable bliss is bound to come. And that's the realization. He gets, gets the cash down payment immediately. Immediately he's getting the payment for it. They do not have to wait for it because he has to, and that is he's doing it with the work. So now comes the next question. What is this work? What is this doing good to the world? Can we do good to the world in real sense? Can we really do good to the world? That we always uh, speak of doing good to the world. So Swamiji will now take up this idea that what does it mean doing good to the world? In an absolute sense, no, we can never do good to the world. That's what Swamiji is saying. In a relative sense, yes. No permanent or everlasting good can be done to the world. If it could be done, the world would not be this world. 
Now, Swamiji, we'll take up this discussion just for a little bit more. We will take one more class where Swamiji is as per our general notion that what we consider as good, that which gives us happiness, that is good, that which makes us more and more equal, brings a sense of equality, that is good. So this idea of happiness, this idea of equality, these are the things we always equate with the goodness. But it has, if you are a karma yogi, it's neither the happiness nor the equality. Not that we shouldn't try for that. But the plan of the universe is such. There cannot be any eternal happiness here. There cannot be equality which we are thinking of, endeavoring for ages together, can be realized in this world. Then are we to be totally disheartened, thinking that there's no way out? No, still, we have to go on working. Because though eternal happiness is not possible, there's Ultimate equality is not possible in this life, but in, through this process, you develop the detachment, that you develop that unselfishness, and it is you who evolve spiritually. The world remains as it is, where every one of us comes here, and we seeing the uh, world in such a state, we say it's a hopeless state. What we can do with it? It's actually our wrong way of seeing it. Why? We, we feel in the words of Swamiji, in some other places saying that we think the world to be a pleasure garden. And when we find that real pleasure, real happiness in no way is possible here, we say it's all useless. It has no meaning. But Swamiji is giving it just a little turn. He said this world is not a pleasure garden. It's a gymnasium where we have came to make ourselves strong. That strength, speaking of spiritual strength. All the situations of life, with all our attempt for more happiness, for more equality, at last we will find we are far away from it. But it should, in the, in the, the entire process, it should have developed a sense of detachment, a sense of, uh, what do you say, this renunciation. And that alone speaks of the gymnasium where you have made yourself sufficiently strong to transcend. The problems of the life remains as it is in spite of all our attempts, but we transcend them. And just a small analogy with the analogy, we will end our class today, that in a classroom, the teacher drew a line in the blackboard and asked the students, can you shorten the line without touching it? It's impossible. Can you shorten, can you, how can you shorten the line without touching it? You have to use the duster to dust a portion of it, to just erase a portion of it. How can you shorten the line without touching it? So all the students were puzzled. They never knew the answer. One small intelligent girl came forward, told, I have the answer. She took the chalk from the teacher's hand and drew a longer line parallel to that line which the teacher drew. So he haven't, she hasn't touched the line which the teacher drew. She just drew a longer line parallel to that line which the teacher drew. And compared to that line, this line has shortened. So this is the entire Karma Yoga. The life's problem remains as it is. That short that line which the teacher drew, that's the, our life. 
we will find that sometimes we think we can change the world. At last you will find nothing is changed. It is as it is. But still you can transcend it. You can shorten it. How? By drawing a longer line. That longer line is the attitude with which you take up the dealings of the world. And that speaks of the Karma Yoga. So if I say I will reduce the suffering of the world, I reduce the inequality. It is trying to shorten the line. It's not possible. It's actually, you have to grow in unselfishment, detachment, renunciation to transcend that through all your actions. And then only the Karma Yoga, instead of making you fanatic, the biggest problem of the world, all the sincere religious believers at last turns out to be howling fanatic. Why? Because they all wanted to shorten the line. They wanted to make the world a better place. And at last you say that such, such and such person is on the way of my make, making the world the heaven. And we just bring out the dagger against each other, fight. How these howling fanatics we are? Because we try to shorten the line. You cannot. Ages together, the attempt is going out. It is never going to happen. The only thing for Karma Yoga is to grow that big, draw a bigger line. And that's what we will take up again in the next class, that how that bigger line can be drawn so that this compared to that, this line becomes shortened and you transcend, you don't eradicate the so-called evils of life, you transcend that so as to attain spiritual freedom. You took the world as a gymnasium by which you grew in strength. You cannot take care of the world. The Lord is taking care of it. He has his own plans. He doesn't need me or you to take care of his world. At last, it, he has given us an opportunity to take care of ourselves. All the good works and everything is at last, not for the world. It actually is for me. I do good for my own welfare at last. And that is the real selfishness. That is the illumined selfishness. There are two types of selfishness. Our Rangnathan used to say that we cannot be unselfish, but be an enlightened selfish person. So karma yoga can make us an enlightenedly selfish. So let's see how it makes us an enlightened selfish person uh, where the self at last merges with the absolute. So as someone told Swami Vivekananda, when Swami Vivekananda was giving lecture on Advaita Vedanta, that he was speaking of that non-dual reality, which is the essence of our being. And one stood up scared one of the, from the audience the Swamiji, what happens to my personality? If I get merged, like a salt doll get merged with the ocean, where my personality is? Swamiji's reply was very wonderful. Well, madam, you are not a person, you, you are not an individual yet. You become an individual when you merge with the absolute. It's a wonderful thing. Each sentence, as we told, can needs a lot of explanation, but that's a wonderful thing which Swamiji is speaking. And that's the thing which Karma Yoga will take us through all these uh, discussions. So we will um, conclude our discussion on Karma Yoga in the next class. With this, we stop our discussion today. Thank you all. Namaskars.